how you guys doing? Everybody good? I don't think I've ever seen a room quieter. You guys quieter than during, during that video. That was that was pretty impressive. Uh, hey, we're glad you guys are here tonight. Welcome to uh, to Reckless, especially if this is your first time. Um, see some some unfamiliar faces, which is awesome. So we're glad you guys are here. Um, we are in the middle of a series called On the Move, and um, I want you guys to go ahead and if you got your Bibles tonight, go ahead and open to Luke chapter seven. Uh, that's where we're going to be tonight. And um, and while you're doing that, I want to. I want to ask you, how many of you guys have had um, a really awkward situation that you've been a part of? Like maybe you were the reason why it was awkward. How many of you guys are just awkward people? All right, that's good. Just embrace it, all right? You're awkward, you say weird things sometimes, and that's why we love you. So maybe you've had, maybe even picture like the most awkward situation that you've ever been in, all right? And and, um, and I know your mind could go all kinds of different places or whatever, but I want you to think of what that is. You got it? You got it in your mind? You know what that awkward situation is? <laughs> yes. Some of you guys are just not awkward and you don't have, that never happens to you. Weird situations never happen. So I was, uh, my wife and I were, um, a, couple, a couple years ago, were at dinner and um, she's probably getting nervous right now as I started to tell this. Like, what are you saying? Um, and uh, we were in the process of selling our house. And so we had um, a, a good friend of ours had come over, and she was a realtor. And so over dinner, we sat at the table, and she was kind of talking through things with us and helping us understand, um, you know, what we could get, sell our house for and what the market was and all that fun, fun stuff that adults have to deal with. And so we're sitting there in the middle of the conversation, and it's a pretty serious moment. And all of a sudden, her chair breaks. And I don't mean like just a leg kind of broke and she kind of went wobbling. I mean crashed to the floor in one sudden motion, and her legs are up in the air. Like, I mean, she is laying on her back with her legs above her head, and, and it happened so fast that Ange and I both just sat there and didn't know whether to like laugh because it was so funny or to like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And so it was kind of, it was like a mixture. It was like hysterical laughter as we like ran over to and helped pick her up off the floor. And I mean, the chair was just obliterated. You know, I'm just like, cool, thanks. Um, and, um, and it's one of those situations like I, I look back and it wasn't awkward for us, it was just funny. Um, but it was incredibly awkward for her. I mean, she felt like a complete idiot. And, um, and to make matters worse, you know, I'm trying to be the adult. I'm trying to be the real mature person. And like 10 minutes later, you know, we've finally been able to kind of laugh it off. And then we're refocused. And every, like, every 30 seconds, Angie would just bust out laughing. <laughs> like 10, 20, 30 minutes later. And I'm just like, you know, come on, seriously, like focus. We're, we're doing this here. And she just like couldn't get it out of her mind of that picture of her just like, destroying that chair and laying in a heap with her legs above her, hair, above her head. So we've, we've all had awkward situations. We've all had those moments that have been embarrassing or, you know, we said something that was really stupid that just made a situation awkward or we've been around situations that we've, we've experienced those. And um, I think what makes a lot of times, what makes it more awkward is when those things happen around people that we don't really know all that well. You know, like if it's around friends or whatever, it's not as big of a deal. But when it happens around complete strangers 
or people that we're really unfamiliar with or don't know all that well or don't really like or whatever, then it just becomes that much more um, difficult or embarrassing or awkward. In, uh, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus has what on the surface appears to be a very awkward conversation and dinner party with, um, with some people. And so I wanna, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and look at, at Luke chapter 7. And, uh, and we're going to start in verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and he sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. All right, now time out right there. Some of us look at that and we're like, oh, that's so sweet. She was kissing his feet and pouring perfume on him. That's so amazing. She loves Jesus so much. But if you read that story, that is, that is an awkward situation. I mean, put yourself in, in that situation, all right? You're hanging out over at some friend's house and his, his or her family, and you guys are sitting down and you're eating dinner. And all of a sudden, somebody busts through the front door. They hadn't been there yet. They bust through the front door and they are carrying this huge jar of something and it smells really nice. And they're crying uncontrollably and they don't say anything. They just come and they kneel before you and they start pouring the stuff on your feet. And as they're crying, they're taking their hair and maybe it's short, maybe it's long, whatever, but they're taking their hair and they're wiping it off with their tears in their hair. Now, how awkward is that? I mean, if, have you ever been in a situation like that, that that, that happened, right? I could, I could probably assume that most of us or all of us have not been a part of that. It's just a weird situation. And if that happened, you know, we'd be looking around at our friends and the family like, what the crap is the deal with this girl? Like, who is this person? And we'd be calling some, you know, getting her checked into some mental hospital or whatever because she's lost her mind. And on the surface, it appears that this is a, just a weird story. And I love how in the Bible we read these stories. And because we don't really understand that culture, we look at it and we're like, what in the world is this? Like, this is just weird. But we have to understand the culture in order to really get what's happening here. All right? So in that day and time, in that culture, um, it was common for if a, if a host invited some people over for dinner. All right, and especially if that was, this was a distinguished guest or you know, the host had a, a nice house or he was wealthy, um, they would have like a, a bowl of water and a towel at the door. All right? And understand that culture. They didn't have cars, believe it or not. They were walking everywhere. They, the roads were dirty. They wore sandals. So at the end of the day, at dinner time, their feet are filthy. I mean, they're nasty. All right, now picture like somebody's feet have been walking around in the dirt all day and then it's your job to wash their feet. Most of us would be like, forget that. I'm not touching that nasty, that nasty person's feet. But understand, this was like one of the biggest forms of humility in that culture. And even today, if we were to do that, I mean, that's, that's a pretty humble thing. And either the host would do it, or if he was wealthy enough, he had a servant that would do that, that, that would do this. He would wash the people's feet as they entered. And it was actually reserved for the lowest of the low servant, all right? So it wasn't like people were like, oh, please, let me, let me wash people's feet. I mean, it was like the, the lowest servant was the one that had this responsibility. 
So that was going on. Then as they come into the, the house, it also was common for the host to come up and to greet the, the people that entered with a kiss. All right? Now, we don't do that anymore. All right? That would probably take our first impression team to the next level if they were like, you know, trying to give you guys kisses as you came in. Some of you guys would love it, depending on who gave it to you. Some of you would be like, what in the heck? Um, so we, that doesn't happen, but that was, that was a common thing that happened when people came into somebody's house. The other thing they would do if it was a really distinguished guest is that the host would have a, a jar of oil or perfume or some, some kind of um, spice or something, and they would pour it on the person's head, all right? And it sounds strange, but that was kind of a, a sign of respect for the people that had entered. Now, this, in this story, this lady is doing all these things. She's not the host, all right? She doesn't live there. She just busted in there and started doing these things for Jesus. And she did this because of her love for him. And she wanted to show her incredible love for Jesus and the love that he had shown her. Now, there's a couple things I want to make sure that we understand about this. It says in the, in the couple verses that we read that she was labeled an immoral woman. In other words, she had a reputation. The people that were there in that party, Luke, who, uh, who wrote this account, they knew this person, all right? She had a reputation, and the reputation wasn't good. She was a sinful person, an immoral person. She was unclean. The other thing was that, again, she was uninvited. This was a gathering for religious people, all right? This was a Pharisee who were, they were religious people, and then they invited Jesus. So this is a bunch of religious people, and she was not one of those people. Another thing to note is that she never said anything. Maybe that's part for us that makes it that much more weird, is that she never says a word. I mean, she literally comes into the door, gets, gathers behind Jesus, um, falls down to her knees at his feet, and just starts weeping. And takes the jar of perfume, pours it on his, on his feet, and is wash, washing it or wiping it with her hair and with her tears. So it is obvious from, from this account that she's had a past encounter with Jesus. All right, she knows what Jesus is all about. She's been able to watch as Jesus has, has gone about the mission that he came to earth to carry out. And she's been impacted, not just a little bit, she's been impacted significantly by Jesus' message. And I can't help but wonder as I read these verses that could it be that Jesus was the first religious person that rather than rejecting her and condemning her had actually offered her forgiveness, had actually offered love to this lady. Her tears indicate that she had a repentant heart, that she desired what Jesus offered her but they also represented her affection for God. They represented her immense love that she had been changed, she had been impacted by God's love for her. Now, as you read this account, you would think that the Pharisee, who's the host of the party, would sit back and watch this unfold and go, man, this is, this is a pretty cool thing. I mean, this woman has come in here and she's just, you're really sacrificed this expensive jar of perfume, she's cried, you know, these incredible tears. I mean, she is passionate about this guy, Jesus. 
You would think that he would be impressed. I mean, Pharisees, they looked for sacrifice. They wanted these, these outward expressions um, of love and passion. And so you would think that the Pharisee would like this, but look at what he says in verse 39. It says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. See, in the midst of a powerful encounter, the Pharisee only sees the woman's sin and he's disgusted. He's offended by the fact that she's busted into his party uninvited. She's offended that she's stolen Jesus' attention away from him. And she's offended that Jesus sits back and allows this woman to do this thing and to touch his feet. I mean, he's, he's nothing more than completely offended, not because of anything else other than the fact that this woman is sinful, and he points it out to people. So this Pharisee wants everybody to know that she is a sinner, that she's got a reputation. So rather than being impressed by this, he's actually repulsed by it. And notice that he says, if, if this man were a prophet. So the, the Pharisee, for whatever reason, I don't know what his intention was of inviting Jesus over. But he doesn't, not only does he not believe that he's the son of God, but he doesn't even believe that he's a prophet. And he can't believe that Jesus would allow this sinful woman to be in his presence, to touch his feet, to display this affection to him because of her immoral lifestyle. So this woman had a reputation, and the Pharisee wanted everybody to know it. What I want to be able to do over the next couple of minutes, and you guys have this in your notes, is talk about, there's, she's not the only one that had a reputation. That the Pharisees in the story and in the Bible have a reputation. And Jesus has also got a reputation. And so I want to spend a few minutes just talking about the differences between the two, I want you guys to write this down. You guys stay with me because we'll, we'll bring it back around and apply it to, um, to our lives today. Here's a few things about, first of all, the Pharisee and their reputation. The first thing is they made their reputation more important than God's glory. They made their reputation more important than God's glory. So understand that the Pharisees, what they did is they, they cared very much about how people viewed them. All right, they wanted to be held in high regard and high standard. They wanted other people to be impressed by them. So they were always doing these things, especially in public, in the view of other people. So they would you know, pray these crazy prayers in the marketplace so that everybody heard them and was like, man, those guys are so spiritual. They would do these you know, crazy things. They would dress a certain way so that people that walked by said, oh man, you know, there's a person that really loves God. They would make sure that they followed every rule in the book. And they even added other rules to the mix so that they could follow those rules, again, so that more people were impressed with them. So even though they were, trying, they were supposed to represent God, they cared more about their reputation than they did God's glory. Another thing to note is that they rejected hurting and sinful people. All right, you notice in his, he, the, the one thing that this guy notices about the woman is her sin. They did, Pharisees did not want to talk to or associate with sinful people, all right? They look, all the time, they look down their nose at all of these other people. 
They didn't want to talk to them. They, they were very unwelcoming and uninviting to people that didn't have the same standards and the view of God that they did. Another thing that, um, that was interesting about the reputation of the Pharisees is that they judged people through the lens of their own self-righteousness. So again, they cared very much about their reputation. They were interested in their own self-righteousness, how people viewed them, their ability to live the, the right way, to do the right things. And they patted themselves on the back all the time. And then through that lens and their high standard and high view of themselves, they viewed everybody else. And if, if other people matched their standard that they had set, then they welcomed them in. But if they didn't, and most people didn't, then they pointed their finger, they looked down their nose, they cast judgment on other people because they were deemed not as righteous as the Pharisees. Now, what about the reputation of Jesus? The first thing about Jesus is that he was known as the friend of sinners. If there was a party going on, Jesus was there. All right? If there were some immoral people, some sinful people in that culture, chances were pretty good that Jesus was nearby. Now, not because he was participating in those things, but because, again, of his mission, the reason that he had come to earth. But he was known because of that, because he was always hanging out with sinners, uh, he was known as the friend of sinners. And it used to tick off the Pharisees. They used to get so upset and so mad that Jesus would hang out with these sinful people. The other thing about Jesus is that he loved the rejected and the despised. Not only was he the friend of sinners, but he loved those people. He went after those people that were the rejects. All right, those people that in that culture were the most despised, the most unloved, the most broken, the most in need of love and acceptance and forgiveness. Those were the people that Jesus was hanging out with. He was passionate about those people. He loved those people. And the other thing is that he viewed people not as they were, but as who he could make them into. And for those of us that have been changed by the, by the grace and the power of God, we ought to be saying amen to that. That when we were broken, when we were hurting, God didn't look at us and only see our sin. God rather looked at us and saw who he could make us into. He saw past the sin and past the brokenness into who he desired to transform our lives into. How incredible is that? That's the kind of reputation that he had. He never compromised the truth, but he always loved people in order to help them experience the forgiveness that only he could offer. Now, this wasn't just, this story isn't just a one-time thing, all right? Just a one-time experience of him loving some one random sinful lady, all right? This was consistent with his lifestyle. This was consistent with his mission. This is the reason why he came to earth, was to reach those people who were lost, those people who were far from God. And again, it used to tick off the Pharisees. A couple chapters earlier, the Pharisees upset, were upset because Jesus is hanging out with sinners, and listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter five, verse 31. It says, Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, 
sick people do. I have come to call not those who think that they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. I want to ask you guys a very important question, and I want you guys to not not dismiss this or anything, but to really think about this question. When it comes to sinful people, are we more like the Pharisees or Jesus? Now, don't answer that question too quick in your mind. I want you to really think about that question. Because, you know, we just painted a, a not very friendly picture of the Pharisees, and so it's easy for us to go, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm like Jesus, man, I love people, I treat people well. But do we really? Are we more in line when it comes to sinful people, people who don't have a relationship with Jesus? Do we treat them more like the Pharisees do or more like Jesus? Either we judge and we condemn lost people like the Pharisees did, or we extend hope and forgiveness like Jesus did. Man, you guys know why a lot of people in the world hate Christians so much? Because a lot of us are guilty more of aligning ourselves with the Pharisees than we are Jesus. And we claim that we love God and we show up to reckless and we say that God's important to us, and yet when it comes to to really loving people the way Jesus loved people, people in the world, all they see is hypocrisy. They see us say one thing and tell people that this matters, and yet we live something much differently a lot of times. So again, when it comes to sinful people, do we treat people more like the Pharisees or like Jesus? I think in order for us to really answer that question and and to kind of help us out, I think we've got to be able to identify who those immoral, sinful people would be in our culture. All right, again, we look at this passage and, and we don't know a whole lot. She was just an immoral woman. So we don't have a whole lot to go by. We don't know what kind of reputation exactly that she had, what she was guilty of. And so sometimes maybe it's hard for us to look at that and translate that to our culture. And so I want to spend a couple minutes just looking at some examples of some people that we might consider or label immoral people in our culture. All right? And as we go through these, maybe you can identify and say, man, maybe I'm guilty of of looking down my nose at that person or judging that person. The first one would be, an example would be maybe the partying crowd, all right? Those teenagers on your campus that look really awesome when they're smoking a cigarette and drinking beer. Maybe it's the, the, the students on your school campus who you know are out partying on Friday night Especially, here's the deal, especially if they claim they love Jesus. And then we hear these stories of the way that they're living on the weekend or these things that they're doing. And maybe we're guilty and we we would look at those people as immoral people. Maybe it's the druggies at school, those people that are smoking pot in the bathrooms or in the, you know, out behind the school or, you know, whatever. Maybe those are the people that we label as immoral people. What about this next one? What about teenagers in our culture that would consider themselves gay? Well, that stings a little more, huh? Do we label these students, and maybe it's because we don't approve of that lifestyle, 
Maybe it's because we don't understand, you know, what they feel or what they're going through. Maybe, maybe it's because we look at them and we think that's gross or disgusting or, and, and we even kind of, you know, make fun of them and we crack jokes in the locker room, you know, about other guys, you know, who are gay and, you know, and, and we're, and guys especially, we're really good at that. And when I say good, I mean that lightly. Maybe those are the kind of people that we would look at and label. And let's be honest, in our culture, especially within the church, maybe this is one that we're guilty of. We hold this at a higher level of sin, and, and we don't accept this nearly as much as maybe other things that we would accept. Maybe we're guilty of, of, of considering or label, labeling them immoral people. Maybe it's the, the student on your campus who would consider themselves an atheist. All right, maybe it's those students who are very, very expressive about how they feel about God. And maybe you've even, as a Christian, you've been mocked by them. Man, you're an idiot. How could you believe that there's a God? Science doesn't prove it. You know, you're stupid for believing in that. You need to use your head and think because there's, there's not really a God. Maybe, maybe there are students like this who maybe they're a threat to our faith or we don't know the right way to talk to them or to engage in conversation with them. And so we take a step back and maybe we, we look down our nose at, at, at students like this. What about a girl who, um, who gets pregnant? What about a student like this? Maybe you know a, a girl on your high school campus who got pregnant and maybe she dropped out of school, maybe she didn't. But man, all of a sudden, opinions change pretty quickly about her. It's interesting that you know, a, lot of, a lot of high school students could be sleeping around and doing all kinds of things, but man, when, when the girl gets pregnant, we start labeling her much, much um, different things. Man, I see some smiles, I see some smirks, I see some you know, looks at each other. Are we guilty of that? And I, as a side note, I had a chance um, over the summer to, uh, to go and visit Paulding Pregnancy Center. And, um, and I, I was very impressed with, with what they did. And here's what I love the most. Is that they have an opportunity. Every single month, they've got girls coming through their front door who have made a mistake, who have gotten pregnant, and rather than treating those girls like a Pharisee and looking down their nose at them and casting judgment and pushing them away because of a mistake that they've made or a poor decision on their part, they've looked at that as an opportunity to represent Jesus. And in a lot of cases, they've helped prevent worse decisions like having an abortion or things like that. And they've welcomed those girls in. And in a lot of cases, teenage girls, high school girls that have gotten pregnant and have radically loved them, have provided a place of comfort and safety for them, have had donations and allowed the girls to come in and to um, receive help in terms of diapers and food for the baby and things that they're going to need to raise the, the child. They offer classes to help educate them and help them to become the best mom that they can be. And I love that. And the challenge for us is, again, are we more like the Pharisees when it comes to 
people that we would label sinful people? Or do we accurately represent what Jesus was all about? Take whatever one of those pictures that maybe you most identified with. And let me ask you this. If Jesus were walking through the halls of your school or, in, or came into contact with students like that, how do you think he would respond to them? And would he cast judgment on them? Would he look down his nose at them? Would he point out all their immoral, sinful choices and how terrible they are for the things that they're doing? Or would he radically, passionately love them? Would those be the, the kinds of people that he'd be going after? Would he not kind of draw a line and, and separate himself and only hang out with the, the church kids or those you know, teenagers that really loved him or that you know, weren't quite as bad? Or would he represent and, and offer his love to everybody no matter what decisions they had made? No matter what kind of choices that they had made or no matter what, um, how broken or hurting or desperate they may have been. See, I think when it comes to reaching lost people or loving lost people, I think a lot of us that are Christians would go, man, I want, I want to see people come to faith in Jesus. I want to see that take place. And then we say, man, I've got, I've got friends from school. Man, I know my, my best friend at school doesn't believe in Jesus. Or I know those, those guys on my sports team that don't know Jesus. Or maybe there's family members that I really care about and I'm passionate. I really would love to see them place their faith and their trust in Jesus. But what about those people that we don't have all that much in common with? What about those people that make us really uncomfortable? What about those people who we don't really agree with decisions they make or understand the choices that they make or where they're at or the brokenness that exists in their life? What about those people? I mean, do we draw a line in the sand and go, yeah, I'm passionate about reaching people and so I'll focus only on these people that I really love and care about? But then I'll neglect all of these people and I'll even make fun and cast judgment on these people that I don't get or don't agree with or don't really have a heart for. Or do we look at every person and say, you know what, they desperately need God. And I want to passionately love them the way that Jesus loved me and the way that Jesus loved them so that they could understand and experience the same hope and forgiveness that I've experienced. Go back to Luke chapter seven. Listen to what he says. Verse 47, Jesus says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. You know why the Pharisees were the way that they were and why a lot of times you and I are guilty of being that way? Because we've forgotten how desperately we ourselves need God. We've lost sight of the desperation of our situation. We've lost sight of how broken we were before Jesus showed up on the scene. And we've forgotten how much God has forgiven us. And because we've forgotten that, we've kind of patted ourselves on the back and said, you know what, I'm not really all that bad. And then we cast judgment on people that we don't think deserve God's love as much as we do. 
But when we understand that Jesus paid a debt for us that you and I could never pay, then that changes the way that we view people and the way that we interact with people, especially those people who are far from God. And rather than casting judgment on them, we are desperate for them to experience the same hope and freedom that we ourselves have experienced from God. It all comes down to this. A powerful movement of God always involves Christians who radically love broken people the way that Jesus did. A powerful movement of God always involves Christians who radically love broken people the way Jesus did. So we'll go back to the earlier question. Are you more like a Pharisee or more like Jesus? And are there certain students right now that you would say, man, I really struggle loving that person? Man, I really, I really have a hard time reaching out to that person and displaying love that Jesus would desire for me to show to them. And I think all of us need to ask God to give us a heart, to transform our heart and give us a heart that beats for, for him and that causes us to radically love people. No matter the brokenness, no matter what they're dealing with, no matter the struggle, no matter how little we identify with or agree with their lifestyle, it doesn't mean that we, that we condone it, their, their lifestyle or say that it doesn't matter. But we view them the way that Jesus views them, not as a sin, sinner person, as an immoral person, but as someone that God can transform and redeem. As we, uh, as we close tonight, maybe there's... Um, Maybe you guys are, are struggling to find opportunities or situations to, to reach those people who are far from God. And if, if you are on a, a public school campus, um, or even if you're a Christian school, man, your school campus is an opportunity every single day to reach those people who are far from you. That you ask God to give you a heart, not to, to sort of make fun of those people or look down your nose, but to give you a heart for them. Maybe a great opportunity is, is, especially for you girls, to get your small group together and, you know, one Saturday or one evening go and serve at Paulding Pregnancy Center. And you go and you, you love those girls the way that Jesus loves them. Maybe an opportunity and something that we're going to start next week is you sign up for Nicaragua. And for, for you to have a heart, not just for the people in our community, but for the level of brokenness and the need for God's love all throughout the world. And I think all of us need that awakening. We need our eyes open to see that. And so maybe that's an opportunity for you. And I would, I would ask all of you guys to pray about that opportunity. But that we start living the way that Jesus has called us to live. And we love people the way that Jesus loves people. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for tonight. God, I pray that you would uh, open our eyes to see and understand um, and you would just, you would speak to us in terms of the way that we view people. And God, when it comes to people who are far from you, when it comes to people who don't have a relationship with you, God, how we respond to them, how we interact to them, the way that we treat them is so incredibly important. And either we accurately represent your heart for them 
Or we line ourselves more up with the Pharisees who look down their nose at them and we cast judgment and we pat ourselves on the back because we think we're better than they are. God, if we've been forgiven much, we love much. God, I thank you that you have rescued us, that you've redeemed us. God, I thank you. And I stand on this stage to know that, God, I am completely undeserving of your love and your forgiveness. And I'm blown away every single day that you would love me the way that you do. And God, I pray that you would give all of us the understanding of how much you loved us. And that would cause us to to change our view of the way we treat people. So God, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.